Welcome to the Make Think podcast series, where we aim to nurture future-focused education and support individuals and teams seeking a continuous approach to learning. Hi, it's Darren from Make Think here, and I'm here once again for this podcast with Michael. How are you going, Michael? Really good, thanks, Darren. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm an educator from Queensland in Australia. And today, we're really fortunate to um, be interviewing Dr. Yong Xiao. For those of you who don't, don't know him, he's a world-renowned educator around all things innovation and globalization. Um, and he's written over 20 books and multiple articles um, on all these topics, and especially around the ideas of giving students authentic choice and agency in driving social change. So really excited in listening what he has to say. This podcast is brought to you by the Make Think Spark Conference, held between July 10th to July 12th, 2019. Want to learn more about how to engage with future-focused learning? Jump on to makethink.com.au for more information. Dr. Zhao, thank you so much for your time today. It is truly an honour to spend some time with you. Um, And I'd love to start... um, today's podcast by asking you the characteristics that you look for. We were just having a bit of a chat about innovation. What do you look for as characteristics in schools that are really driving innovation successfully? Well, I think, you know, that, uh, you know, first of all, you know, we need to think about innovation. Um, what, what makes good innovation? I've been thinking a lot about radical innovations, radical changes in schools, a new paradigm. So, uh, I mean, any school, um, that supports, for example, really the growth of individual students, uh, individual students growing in their own way. And so you can have uh, unique and great individuals. Uh, that's not necessarily good measured by any standards or testing. Uh, so that's, that's really, uh, I think, a number one thing. So I would look for student co-ownership of school environment, of teaching and learning. And uh, this goes beyond simple student voice and engagement. It's really about uh, them take responsibility of their own learning mm. and has uh, opportunities and to be confident, to uh, know that they're good at something and they're using their goodness to help others, to create value for other people, which is uh, a form of entrepreneurship. And we, I want to say a school that the teachers and adults they see the child, they don't see the curriculum, and curriculum are just uh, simple opportunities that you can create to help young, uh, young people grow. They're not something we force our children into. And uh, and also at the same time, I, I want to have a school, as I ask you the question, that children truly have a lot more control uh, in what they do, where they do it, and how they do it. And uh, most importantly, we do not judge our children based on what they don't know, but rather based on what they know. And what they don't know uh, is uh, sometimes very artificial. So, uh, you know, what I would call a school that inspires individuals to become great, mm-hmm. that a school that uh, supports diversity and uh, the unique jagged profile of individuals, a school that helps children learn to identify problems worth solving, uh, but in essence, would have to force the school to be very flexible, have tremendous trust in the children, and uh, force the idea that uh, we are there uh, to support, we are there to 
help create opportunities. We're not there to impose uh, a, a set of standards or curriculum on all our children. Yeah, so um, you touched upon um, entrepreneurship and this idea of entrepreneurial mindset. Um, in your, I guess, like, you know, with your expertise, what's your definition of entrepreneurship? And, you know, if coming from a school environment, how does it actually bring value to a school community? If we were to articulate it and try and sell it to a parent community, how does it add well, value I think to the school? Entrepreneurship is often misunderstood as uh, you have to do a business. I mean, a uh, modern interpretation of the word has really evolved from traditional business entrepreneurship towards social entrepreneurship, towards entrepreneurship. Yes, it's really a mindset. It's a spirit. You are not there trying to make money or necessarily. But you know that your when your value uh, creates when you create value for others, you benefit psychologically, socially, economically, whatever however you define it. But that kind of entrepreneurship is also comes the second uh, reason. So number one is creating value. Number two is has to be creativity or invention based. That is entrepreneurship is not just to set up a regular lemonade stand or sell cookies. You know, that's not creative. So you need to be disruptive entrepreneurship. That's more meaningful to society. So our children have to focus on creating or inventing something new. So that pushes what, you know, where to go, you know, with that. And the, the, the third element of entrepreneurship is really about uh, children learn uh, to appreciate strength and weaknesses of individuals. That is, they recognize what they're good at, what they're interested in, but at the same time, accept their weaknesses, understand the interdependence of humanity, understand the interdependence of individuals. So that is, uh, that's kind of things that I would argue. So if uh, any community, any parents would be, want their children to become a valuable human being, to become someone who matters to others, to matters to the society, if they want their children to be creative and inventive, if they want their children to be collaborative and aspire to become great, they would appreciate this kind of entrepreneurship education. And what advice would you have if, you know, for any school or any educators that want to dive into this um, entrepreneurial mindset or developing an entrepreneurship program in their school, what, like, you know, what a couple of advice you, you might have for them? Well, I think, you know, the... Um, Advice would be uh, we have to relax from our misperception that curriculum or standards or testing matters. That uh, no testing, no curriculum can actually prescribe what our children should be. You know, they, a lot of people focus too much on NAPLAN, on numerous and literacy, and those are the basic things. We need to relax our thinking that we need to think our children as human beings. They have uh, uh, uniqueness, they are diverse and different, you, uh, and they're capable. And our children want to learn, uh, actually they dive to learn, I mean, they really want to learn. It's hard to deprive them of learning. They are born, natural born learning machines, they have mm. to learn. They want to do good because they are social beings, they, they want to help. So we need to uh, guide our children in uh, helping them identify problems worth solving so they can solve it. They appreciate what they can do, they find value, you know, uh, in themselves. You know, that that's a second thing we need to really rethink about the whole. Where do we start? Education starts with a problem. Children 
identify as valuable. There's no rush. You know, why, why do we have to be so urgent? You have to teach this week and this hour, and uh, you must master this. That kind of mastery thinking by age, by time, is actually harmful. So the, the, the first thing is that we need to retreat from our, you know, isolated, outdated definition of what good learning, good education is. And then instead, we need to create what I would call a very broad and flexible uh, a set of learning opportunities. We need to treat children as equal community members so they can take responsibility for their own learning. Because when you try to impose on them, you're basically treating them as um, someone to be governed, to be controlled, instead of having them develop self-control and self-regulation. And it's interesting what you're talking about there. Are there areas around the world that you're seeing that happening more than other parts? I know you do a lot of work across Australia, even though you're based overseas. Are there pockets within Australia where you're really starting to see that change? Well, yeah, there's plenty of places actually is making those changes. You know, I'm uh, just completing a book with uh, a number of my students, which I called mm -hmm. from... Uh, Yes, but to yes and. You know, many people agree with the vision. They say, well, yes, but we cannot do that. We'll find a lot of places that's been saying yes and, let's do it. And, you know, you, yeah. you mentioned uh, uh, Templestowe, Peter Hutton. You know, that's one place, of course. And uh, they, you have uh, the, the many schools uh, linked to Peter Hutton's network. And schools like in Australia, I would say All Saints College. I've been working with them over the past two years in Perth. You've seen, you can go there, see their big changes. And uh, the, the, uh, a number of independent schools in Adelaide uh, I've been working with for about the last two and a half years. And they are running a conference, actually, to report what they've done. And I've just started working with a network of uh, 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 government schools in uh, South Australia. There are schools in China, uh, Hong Kong, you know, schools here in the U.S. And uh, I mean, such innovation... Pockets of innovation, uh, you know, are almost ran everywhere. Uh, it's just uh, uh, depends on how far, you know, they can go. Some old independent, independent schools, prestigious ones like Punahou in Hawaii has been making changes. There's a new school in China called Beijing Academy, a health field, are all moving towards the direction. Dr. Jaff, I'd just love to pick up on, you talked earlier about that sort of idea of organic learning. And I think something that teachers listening to this sometimes um, struggle with is the idea of trying to set up a student-centered learning experience, but it ends up being what the teacher wants rather than the students driving the learning. Is there any advice you can give to teachers in that situation? Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't I think it's very challenging for many teachers because we are trained to teach. Uh, and we interpret teaching as... Uh, uh, making sure what's been prescribed in the curriculum, in the mm. standards, in the books uh, is taught, you know, so that is we are focused on effectively transmitting or presenting what we need to present to our students. And so that's sometimes we, I say this, we we're worried about teaching and so much that we forget it's about learning. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's, so that, that is uh, Probably, you know, if we can shift our thinking from teaching to learning, it might be better is that uh, how, you know, how 
students best learn is it when they're engaged, when they're learning something relevant, learning something meaningful, and when they are ready to learn, you know, when they are ready to ask for information, you know, that, that is something that's probably uh, differently set up. I think right now, a lot of our teaching is this idea called just in case. That is, well, you might need this to do that. Even when we do projects, we have that mentality to say, you know, you know, in order to do this project, you need to learn this. Mm. You know, you, you, I was actually reading something really interesting um, by um, by Wilson. I, I forgot his uh, his very controversial Harvard biologist who began talk about uh, social evolution, those kind of things. He's in his nineties. He's a very well known biologist, and he he was he just he's not, he just was writing something recently uh, last week, talking about how we got STEM wrong, you know, STEM. You know, we always tell children, if you want to become, let's say, um, a biologist you know, or a doctor, you better learn biology. If you want to learn biology, well, you know, biology is built on chemistry. If you learn chemistry, you better start with physics. Physics has to do with math. You do math. So we have this general idea that if you want to do something, we have the whole package, you know, of pre uh, preparation subjects for you to do. He said, you know, that's just complete nonsense. He said, you know, it's a, if you have an idea you want to pursue, just go pursue that. Then you automatically expand to whatever field you need. It's a, if you're wondering about space, go wonder about space, study the space, and then Work that will strengths. lead you to other domains. Yeah, and I'm sure you're talking there about working with your strengths, and there's a lot of research to talk about that idea of, of working well, to your strength, and strength, on your passion. You know, but not start with preparing them. You know, I think we have this just-in-case preparation mindset. That's problematic. One, one of the ideas that I talk about a lot myself is this idea of flirting. And I didn't invent that word, but it really resonated with me the first time I heard it, that idea of learning through failure. And I know a while ago, I looked at one of your journal articles around what works may hurt. And, and I loved that you were really talking about that idea that, that learning does hurt as we're moving through that process. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, actually, it was uh, in All Saints College in Perth has been really engaging people, reflect on learning. I was just there working with the teachers. The teachers were reflecting on learning about what you know they've learned, you know, what kind of failed. It's a... Uh, well, you know, in my understanding, I always talk about productive failures and unproductive success. Uh, uh, sorry, unproductive successes mm. and the productive failures. Yep. Because in, in teaching, a lot of times, you know, we have multiple outcomes, multiple goals. When you were talking early on about this reading program, sorry, I'm, that's why I'm very curious about that. Because I've examined a lot of early reading programs. A lot of them have this thing called unproductive success that in short term that's called side effects in short term children get driven up they can they can read they can decode and they score very high in early ratings tests you know for example before third grade a lot of learning you know early reading tests has to do with uh, you know letter, letter recognition decoding skills mm -hmm. but once you uh, get on to a uh, beyond third and go into fourth grade, your reading deals with comprehension, emotion, uh, uh, love for reading, and interest in reading, expansion, that changes. And uh, overspending time, uh, focus on decoding might hurt in the future. Actually, you probably see a lot of states in, uh, pro uh, in Australia, I've seen a lot of schools, children have a bump in their first, uh, you know, in their early 
uh, not plan results, uh, but then they drop later mm -hmm. on. That's one of things called, you know, you have this uh, success immediate, but that may come at the cost of um, interest, love, content, you know. And so that, that's one thing. But at the same time, you have those uh, um, productive failures that in early on, children may be struggling, they're not learning as that. But however, that maintain their interest, creativity, and passion, and they will flourish uh, later on at different, different times. So the side effects are ideas of what works may hurt and uh, what hurt may work as well. So you can just flip that idea is think about education outcomes. You know, reading has a lot more outcomes associated with reading than decoding comprehension that pass and not plan. Mm -hmm. Reading is probably a way of trying to uh, really um, unveil the human invention of writing system. It, the reading is also a way to appreciate writing as a technology. You know, so there's a lot more to that than simply being able to understand the writing system. So the same thing with history, same thing with science. You know, science, for example, a lot about science is, is, is not about scientific facts. It is more about scientific spirit. It is about how mm. science, science interact with humanity, how science, you know, is, uh, 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 you know, can be misused and misjudged, you know. So there's a lot more to any of those outcomes, but very often in a discipline, we narrow ourselves and then we make very interesting, fascinating human endeavors like math, like science, like technology, very boring. You know, all those actually are very fascinating human endeavors. You know, we won't inquire about this, but then actually we kill that interest. That is sometimes would be a side effects called, you know, unproductive success in the long run. This podcast is brought to you by the Make Things Spark Conference, held between July 10th to July 12th, 2019. Want to learn more about how to engage with future-focused learning? Jump on to makethink.com.au for more information. So, Yong, um, I'm hearing some amazing things about a project that you're working in China with um, my good friend, Melissa Bray. Um, every time I talk to her, she's just buzzing with excitement. Um, is that project like you know similar to what you've been talking about in this podcast? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, we're working with a school in, in China, a large school. We're trying to basically uh, um, uh, undertake this very almost impossible mission of trying to change a very successful uh, school in China. As you know, the Chinese culture is very much uh, uh, deeply rooted in uh, standardized testing. Uh, in uh, really in being successful early on, so a lot of side effects issues. And what we're trying to we're trying to incorporate uh, entrepreneur thinking, student driven, and choice, and as well of course creativity and uh, language. You know, of course English language, make it bilingual, and uh, together to take uh, part of the day of curriculum to revise, redo it. We are tackling this issue from. A curriculum angle, uh, we're trying to combine language learning with entrepreneur activities. We're trying to tackle uh, the idea of uh, social organization. You know, almost no innovation schools trying to deal with about how students organize themselves. You know, we, we, we have one natural organization in our schools. There are students, there are teachers. 
We said, I'm talking about what's, how students organize. They're social beings. You know, how do they interact? Deliberate in design activities. You know, in our schools now, we have sports teams, you know, other clubs. But seldom we put students in social positions so they can explore their strength, their weakness, and their desires to help each other. And we also think about uh, uh, opening up learning as a global event. So we're collecting with schools in different countries. And so our students can work together online and globally. In a sense, uh, Michael, you're into educational technology. That's another area which we completely have not utilized. You know, we are, it's ironic that many schools now are banging devices, prohibiting device into usage. You know, when, a few years ago, we spent so much money trying to connect them. Uh, the, the reason, you know, children use it for the wrong reasons mm. is because we did not give them a right reason to do it. Yep. So we're basically trying to build a entrepreneurship-driven, student-driven, reorganized social structure of learning and the social learning process and open up the learning space as a, as a global. We want to help our children to be understanding global interdependence as well as individual interdependence, understand that uh, uh, the future is not about rote memorization or test taking. It is about creating options and values for others. It is also for the every student to understand, appreciate that everyone has something to offer. Everyone has something to worth cultivating. It's going to be a massive undertaking. It's very challenging. I, I, I can tell you is that because we have to convince the school and parents and students this is not going to hurt them, not going to ruin them, which, of course, I, I can I'm sure uh, uh, Michael and Darren, you you are very familiar with in any school system. That's very, very hard. Mm, and I very much understand what you're talking about with trying to bring the, the parents along that journey and make sure they understand the compelling why. Why are you trying to change these models? Uh, it's something that I've had some experience with introducing some design-centered learning into a school and, and having teachers ask that question as to, I don't know if the, my student should be having this control over their learning moving forward. You actually have to take the time to let the parents see the advantages of this, developing these skills. And I love that you, talk, that you use these key terms around trust, flexibility, the school for one, uh, that, that really resonates. But we do have to remember as educators to make sure that we're letting the parents see that compelling why and bringing them along the journey as well. That, that's actually the, the challenge for a lot of innovations. And, and uh, so, I mean, parents, reasonable parents can be convinced and uh, they, they, they care about their children's future. They care about their children today. So a new model of education, I mean, sure, actually will give them happier, more engaged children today mm. and really a more potential to succeed in the future, both as a human being as an economical, you know, a worker or employee in the workforce. It's, uh, as I say, if you're worried about your children in the future, giving them more credentials won't necessarily work because uh, mm. they are not going to be job seekers. They're more likely to be job creators. And the best job you can have, most secure is the one you can create. I'm sure uh, uh, many of you, Darren and Michael, you are actually in a position of creating your own jobs. You're redefining what your job is. I'm sure your job description did not include running this podcast. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> totally. And, you know, um, in talking about engaging with parents, it was interesting that with that Electify um, 
I pitched to the school and ran. Um, initially, when we ran a parent information session, talking about the different skill sets that and the dispositions that we'll be teaching the students, it was the parents that got the most excited because that that was what was happening and what they saw in their workplace. Whereas for the students, they don't know what they don't know. So for them, it was like, oh, I don't get to you know um, build a surfboard. Well, if you want to build a surfboard, let's really unpack it. Like, you know, um, what does the whole process look like? Um, but for students, they really don't know what they don't know. But for the parents, once you can engage with them, um, you know, um, it just makes it makes the whole process so much easier. Definitely. I think it's the, uh, uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, parents are also used as an excuse for not to change by some school leaders and teachers. They say, well, parents want this, parents want that. But, but realistically, you probably know very well, very few parents actually come to your class. Very few parents actually even come to your parenting events. <laughs> Many parents actually trust you a lot more, you know, than, than you do. But, you know, you need to explain. You need to uh, make a case for these changes, you know. Yeah, and particularly the difference between the primary sector and the secondary sector. Parents are very, very willing to give a lot of time in primary, but then as students move through into secondary, we find that parents aren't as giving with their time and, and wanting to be involved with the education sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, like, uh, you know, for example, um, in Australia, if you think about parents, you know, ATAR is... is under serious debate, I'm not sure in 10 years, ATAR will be as powerful as today. We're about to introduce ATAR in the Queensland system. So it's very interesting to hear you say that. Our current year 11 students will be receiving an ATAR for the first time next year when they graduate as year 12. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of works for uh, a lot of forces working against that. It's, it's, it's changing a lot. I think it's, uh, but again, you know, my view of, of change, of innovation, is never trying to impose on everybody, is never trying to expect 100% of everybody to do anything. I, I think innovation works for those who want to innovate. And so we can try to convince, we can try to spread the message, we can try to invite, but we'll never impose. I, I, I mean, uh, I'm always hopeful there is someone who will try to change. And when the whole entire humanity decides not to look into the future, not to make good judgment about future, the humanity may not survive, which we've seen, you know. A lot of great civilizations die just because, you know, they're busy uh, protecting their current or past, not into the future. Mm -hmm. You know, if you read any history books, you know, like Tom B., you know, Jared Diamond, about why societies collapse, why civilizations die, they typically uh, commit suicide because they cannot foresee the future changes and be prepared for those future changes. And those future changes, they look very distant, they look very irrelevant. But when it happens, it happens very fast. So, so talking of the future, uh, Dr. Zhao, are there are a few pointers that educators should be thinking about. You, you have a lot of research that you're involved in right around the world. Are there a couple of key things that you think will change education moving into the future, five years, 10 years, 20 years time? Yeah, I mean, I think children, I think to this children are really uh, not being served well, and many of them 
uh, revolting against that. And they're the disengaged children. They should uh, make the, uh, the, the they're forcing the schools to change. And the students are, uh, you know, we may not see them a lot, but they are creating alternatives. You know, that, that's that's one thing. So and uh, second is of course is technology. It's uh, the the law massive loss of uh, traditional uh, lines of jobs and uh, with artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, robotics, automation that comes in. That's going to really uh, devalue a lot of traditional skills and knowledge that schools are proud of. You know all those things, and I think uh, um, secondary post secondary education. There's uh, new experiments about college admission standards in the U.S., different ways of evaluating students, assessing students. That's actually happening. Uh, many people who are wise enough not to seek traditional post-secondary education, they may bring big changes, you know. And, of course, the other part is the, the rise in inequity in e- economics, you know, that is... Uh, Right now, in, in every country, you see the rise of xenophobia, nationalism, racism, and that is actually the cause of more uh, rising income gap. You know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and that's going to bring some lot of social turmoil unless education jumps in to help uh, change that. You know, that, that's, uh, that's big, a big deal, you know. And when you talk about globalization, you talk about equity, fairness, do you see technology as helping that situation moving forward or being a hindrance? Well, I think, again, uh, I don't think technology itself does one thing or another necessarily. It's really about the uses. It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's how it's been used. It's, uh, and uh, as you know, there are many people trying to use technology to do good. And there are plenty of people use technology to do bad, you know, yeah. right now. That, that's, uh, but I think how do we help our children to understand, to live in a digital world? That's key. Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, in our schools today, most schools still treat technology as a tool to learn mm-hmm. instead of as object to learn, to examine. We need to examine technology as a major thing. And I think I wrote this in 2009, almost 10 years ago about, we gotta learn how to to live in a digital world. How do we use technology to do good or bad? So when we talk about the future, I always say there are really two futures. One is more a kind of a weatherman kind of future. You know, We believe we are all irrelevant. We just walk in to the future. We let someone else define the future for us. We sit here just to do forecasting to, uh, to kind of uh, predict. Another way is more participatory future. We are all in this. So we, we, we create, we change. Depends on what every one of us do, what the future will be. So, you know, just to end this, you know, I, I don't believe we prepare children for the future. Mm. We really prepare them to create a better future. They are the creators of the future. You know, they can't imagine someone, oh, someone else is creating a future for me. I'm just walking into it. So with technology, globalization, every one of them, when how the world is going to end has a lot to do with how we educate our children today. Thanks for that, Dr. Xiao. Um, yeah, I really like your idea around giving students authentic choice and making, you know, um, and making the world a better place. Um, thank you so much again for your time. Um, Darren, is there anything you'd like to add? 
No, it's just been a, a pleasure and an honor to to talk to you over this time. And I really appreciate your, your comments around making sure that we are positioning students at the center of their learning and giving them that trust, flexibil flexibility and options to, to drive their own learning. Uh, so I really, really appreciate your time today and it's given me a lot to think about and I'm sure our listeners will go away and have lots to think about moving forward. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Yep. No worries. Thanks, Dr. Chow. Okay. Bye. Bye. See you. So, Michael, that was our, our podcast with Dr. Zhao and, and it was just an incredible experience to talk to somebody so knowledgeable with so much research behind him from all different parts of the world, uh, talking about innovation, globalization, but also that idea of entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, that was fascinating. What, what were your initial thoughts? Um, two things jumped out at me. This idea of school of one, whether where we give co-ownership of student learning. Um, we got to actually empower and trust the students to be able to drive and direct their own learning. And also the idea of um, engaging with the community. So what does um, engaging with stu both students and parents look like um, and having all three parties, the school, the students and the parents be involved in the learning process. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really loved myself him talking about um, the co-ownership and giving students flexibility. And that's a challenge for leaders in schools. Uh, he was really challenging us to think about the school in a completely new light, uh, breaking down the walls and opening up uh, the idea of students co-founding, co-owning um, that learning process and having far more responsibility in their futures. Uh, so that was what that really resonated with me. Um, those ideas of, of flexibility and options for students in schools. And that's a big challenge for us as leaders. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, again, he touched upon what that might look like in a school, but I guess for a teacher, you know, a beginning teacher or a teacher with limited experience that want to dive into those areas, um, what might that look like? Um, you know, that was one of my wondering. So or how does the school support that particular teacher to be able to upskill in those areas? Because one thing that Dr. Zhao sort of touched upon was that those are, those are areas that's currently not being taught in university as they try mm. to be training to be a teacher. So I guess for, for teachers that are really starting to play around with student-led learning, they might be playing with different PBL models. My one takeaway for somebody early in their career would be Dr. Zhao talking about the idea of just do it, just get in, learn from your mistakes, but don't use it as an excuse to not try. He, he spoke about those ideas of, of just do it. And I really, really like that as a model for a, a young inexperienced teacher um, to know that um, the experts are saying to, to get in, try, learn from your mistakes and have that mindset that you're not going to get it right first time. I think that would be my one key takeaway for the educators listening today. Yeah, I guess it's this notion of, you know, the school empowering that particular teacher or the student, the permission for them to innovate. Um, that's really important and as a key driver, I think, in all these things, all these areas that we talk about in innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, you absolutely have to be in a, in a school where leadership allows you to take that opportunity to learn on the job and to have failure along the way. But I hope that's the way that education's moving here in Australia. I feel like more and more schools are, are letting teachers have autonomy around what's happening in the classroom. Um, and that can only be a good thing for us moving forward. 
Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of the times, you know, we always, when we're talking about the change model, a lot of changes are being enforced from the top down. So how does the everyday teacher from the bottom up drive innovation? So this idea of just do it, you know, with exploring the PBL model and what might that look like in their particular unit of work or their subject area, um, connecting with other teachers that are, that are exploring that space or have experience in that space, um, that might be a good starting point for them. So again, it's been so great to, to listen to somebody that's talking about engagement with students with their learning. Um, Makethink.spark conference is coming up in July this year and again the main theme is around engagement so to have international speakers coming along and continuing our learning around what does that engagement look like as we move forward in the 21st century I just can't wait to be at that conference and learn from more people both nationally but internationally their different viewpoints really is and if you want to know more about the conference you can go to www.makethink.com.au so thanks once again to Dr. Yong Zhao for his time today. It's been fascinating to talk to him about the topics of globalization, innovation in schools, and we're really thankful for his time. And we hope you can join us again for another Make Think podcast in future. Thanks, Michael, for your time. No worries. Talk to everyone soon. Bye.